Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It's uh, good to be with you again this week. Uh, as you're grabbing your seats, we're going to continue our time in the book of Acts. And so go ahead and meet me in Acts chapter 22. Uh, we'll pick up right in verse 17. Once again, that's Acts 22, verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to bring one every week. Um, we take studying God's Word seriously. We don't just preach uh, about the Bible, but from the Bible. Uh, and so we open it up every week. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you are free to use um, and take one of those black Bibles in front of you that we've provided to you. Uh, the passage that we're going to study from this morning is found on page 876 in those Bibles. Uh, that's page 876. Um, just a reminder to you as well here in this first service um, that this morning we are inviting everybody from the church to join us in the gym after service and between our services for a time of corporate prayer. Uh, and we'll go into that immediately following the service. Uh, the focus of our time in prayer together will be our local outreach ministry specifically to refugees um, and an ESL camp that we have coming up near the end of August. And so I do hope that you'll join us after service in the gym uh, once we're done. Um, if you were not here with us last week, we begin reading this morning from, an, from somewhat an awkward spot uh, in the story. Um, we will begin reading right in the middle of a uh, defense speech that Paul is giving to a crowd of Jews right outside the temple gates who are seeking to kill him. Um, the Jewish crowd was under the assumption that Paul was attacking Judaism and defiling the temple. And uh, so, so they, they formed this riot and, and, and tried to kill him. And it took the intervention of a Roman commander, a tribune, to actually arrest Paul in order to pacify the crowd. And after Paul's arrest, he asked the commander if he could speak to the crowd uh, to, to give a defense and the commander allows it. Um, what we looked at last week was the first part of Paul's defense. He explained to the Jews that his ministry, especially towards the Gentiles, uh, came as a result of having seen and hearing the risen Jesus. Uh, and that he was called to bear testimony, to, to be a witness to what he had seen and what he had heard, a witness to the fact that Jesus was alive and conquered death. And um, we'll find out today that he was specifically called to share this message with the Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles, if you don't know, are what the Jewish people would call anybody as part of the non-Jewish population. If you are not Jewish, you are Gentile. And Paul, to this point in Acts, has spent years focusing on the Gentiles, declaring there is in Jesus to the Gentiles. And our passage today, at least the beginning of it, recounts the events that led to Paul going um, to the Gentiles. And so we pick up the story here in verse 17 of Acts 22. I invite you to follow along as I read. We will go all the way to verse 11 of uh, chapter 23. This is what God's word says. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. 
Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought uh, into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he had realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God on all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Would you pray with me? Father, as we turn our gaze to you this morning, we declare that our help comes from you as you have created the heavens and the earth, you sovereignly keep hold of us. And we trust you to restore our soul and give us strength in weary times and comfort. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you now reveal yourself to us through your word so that we can become more like Jesus and love you more. For it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. One of my family's favorite hobbies to do together are uh, putting together puzzles. Uh, Personally, I feel a great sense of achievement and fulfillment uh, in seeing disorder and and initial chaos uh, brought in to order. 
there's a thrill for me to see uh, how these seemingly random pieces of a puzzle fit into a greater picture altogether. Um, however, every single time we sit down to do a puzzle without fail, there is always at least one intriguing piece of the puzzle that doesn't seem to fit in the way that I anticipate it to fit. Uh, An example of this, just recently we completed a puzzle uh, which was a picture of Central Park uh, in New York City. It was a Central Park lake, and in the background was the uh, New York City skyline. And, And there was one piece in particular that I saw early on that I was convinced was part of the buildings in the skyline. Looking at its design and looking at its detail, there was no way that it could go anywhere else. There was no way that it could fit anywhere else in the puzzle. And so you could imagine my own confusion and rather my annoyance as we progressed through the puzzle and finished the skyline and the piece didn't fit where it belonged. Uh, Based on my own understanding and my own observation, it just didn't make sense. And it didn't make sense until the greater picture was revealed to me. Because as we continued through the puzzle, I found that this particular piece, which I sincerely believed belonged to the skyline, was actually a small portion of the lake, which had a small reflection of a building. In this life, we view the world through a singular perspective. And due to such limitations, limited perspective due to such human limitations, we are only able to see small pieces and not all the pieces of that. We see but fragments of a larger picture, uh, larger than we can even comprehend. Yet we recognize that as believers, that God is the one, being the creator of all things, who has the full picture in mind. And he will see to it that such pieces that we can only observe are sovereignly set in their proper place. And sometimes we are so convinced that pieces fit a certain way, yet God has another plan altogether, as was the case for the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Once again, Paul continues his defense in verse 17, and he recounts how Jesus called him to the Gentiles, Um, This story that Paul shares actually takes place. There's a significant jump in Paul's story. It takes place about three years after his initial encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, which we looked at last week. Um, And Paul explains that when he had returned to Jerusalem after uh, meeting Jesus, he he was in the temple. He was praying. And and Jesus once again directly communicated to Paul. Um, Now remember, Paul was called to be a witness to what he had seen and heard. He was called to tell people about the risen Jesus. And here in the beginning of our passage, Jesus warns Paul to get out of Jerusalem quickly because they are going to reject his testimony of what he has seen and heard. They will not listen to Paul, and Paul is in danger and he needs to flee. And how Paul responds to Jesus in verse 19 is almost laughable because he essentially says, Jesus, you you must be mistaken. You don't know what you're talking about. 
They're not going to persecute me because look at my background. Look at my credentials. Paul thought given his own history in persecuting Christians as a Jew himself, that he had enough credibility to witness to the Jews. And he sort of here in these opening verses tries to negotiate the situation with Jesus because it's his desire to witness to the Jews. Right? We know from other parts of Scripture that Paul had this extreme ambition when it came to reaching the nation of Israel. And so he has this all worked out in his head. Right? Right? He says, I, I, I'm here. I'm, calling what you, I'm doing what you called me to do and bearing testimony to what I have seen and heard. I am gifted. And because of my credibility, I am, Jesus, I am the perfect guy to do this here in Jerusalem, right, right, right here and right now. Jesus, I'm not going anywhere because my plan uh, is a pretty good plan. What we see in this interaction is that even our godly ambitions have the potential to become idols in our hearts. Sometimes we convince ourselves that our plans, which are sincerely good plans, are more important than God's plans. And we insist on having it our own way. Whereas truth be told, I have a plan for my life. And God has a plan for my life. And my plan doesn't matter when all is said and done. Now, this is not to say that ambition is wrong. It's okay to be ambitious in your life. But what must be realized is that all of my ambitions, along with everything else in my life, must be surrendered to the one greater than all things, to the one who sees the full picture, even if it doesn't make sense from my point of view. My ambitions still come under the authority of God. They still come under his direction and his will. Paul was given a small piece of the puzzle and tried to convince Jesus that it fit a particular way. And Jesus says, no, I have something else in mind. I see things differently from you. Your plans are not my plans. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. I have other plans for you, Paul, uh, plans that may not make sense to you right now. And so despite Paul's plea, the Lord tells Paul in verse 21, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that is what finishes Paul's defense speech to this Jewish mob. And that is how Paul was called to go to, to the Gentiles. That was the circumstances surrounding his initial thrust to, uh, to the Gentiles. And I want us to tuck that last verse in the back of our mind. We're going to return to it later. Um, for, for now, though, we, we note that the overriding message that Paul communicates to his audience in his defense speech is that it is the sovereign will of God to bring salvation, the salvation message, news of the risen Jesus to all nations, regardless of heritage and regardless of background. Now that concept in and of itself triggers the crowd. We get the impression that they're actually listening up to this point, and Paul has more to say, but they cut him off as they begin raising their voices once more and shouting at Paul. They, they're calling for his death and they throw their cloaks on the ground and they, they, they start literally kicking up a bunch of dirt. All of this signals just their rejection of Paul's defense. They think that he's blasphemous. And the reason that they react in this way is because they cannot see beyond Paul's mission to the Gentiles. 
specifically that this message was available to the Gentiles without regard to Judaism. Right? They were okay, actually, with Gentiles becoming Jewish. But for Paul to claim that God had revealed himself to the Gentiles and that they didn't need to become Jewish first was an abomination. They hated Paul's claim that one has access to God through Jesus rather than through Judaism. So once again, the Roman tribune intervenes and and Paul is ordered back into the barracks. Um, At this point in the story, we know as the reader, Paul to be innocent of the Jewish charges against him. However, the tribune still does not know what's going on. He he still does not have a clear picture. He couldn't get the answers out of the crowd uh, back in chapter 22 when he initially asked them. And, And so he resorts to taking matters into his own hands. Right? If he can't get the answers out of the mob, he's just going to beat the truth out of Paul, which was not uncommon in, in those days. And so, so he orders Paul to be flogged, to, to be whipped. And the, and the next scene in the passage that we read kind of plays out like a movie scene with a shocking twist. Um, Paul, Paul is prepared for flogging. He's probably stripped down of his clothes. He's, it says that he was stretched out. He's probably tied down. He's, he's against a wall or against a platform. And, and you can imagine this centurion about to wail on Paul when all of a sudden Paul plays the ace up his sleeve. Probably with a smirk on his face saying, you wouldn't strike a Roman citizen who's uncondemned, who hasn't stood trial yet, would you? And for the first time in the story, to everyone's surprise, Paul is a Roman citizen. And with Roman citizenship came certain rights. And one particular right is that Roman citizens could not be flogged or punished or even bound in such a way without due process. A Roman officer who bound and flogged a citizen without due process would actually be guilty of a crime himself, which is why the Roman tribune was afraid in verse 29, because he, he knows he's potentially in, in hot water in his own handling of Paul. And all of a sudden, his demeanor sort of changes towards Paul. Now, now, this part of the story is very significant, not just for the rest of our passage, but actually for the rest of the book of Acts. Paul claimed, Paul's claim of Roman citizenship actually serves as a pivot point in the story as a whole. God uses this seemingly random piece of the puzzle that Paul is a Roman citizen and it will actually play in to God's picture and his purposes. This citizenship detail, which was sovereignly orchestrated by God, we're told, at Paul's birth, at least more than a half century prior, sets the trajectory for Paul's ministry for the rest of his life. Because as a Roman citizen, the tribune now has a responsibility to Paul to ensure that he sees due process. In a way, what we'll see in the rest of the book of Acts is that the Roman legal system now protects Paul in a way. Yes, he is under arrest and investigation, but he will not be unjustifiably punished. And he has the right as a Roman citizen, to appeal uh, an, uh, to, to, to an appeal system 
in Roman law, which will take him all the way to the city of Rome, which we see later in Acts. And we see this protection. We see him come under the protection of the Roman law right away in the next scene. In the very next scene, this poor tribune once again. He's still trying to get to the bottom of what has happened with Paul, what's going on. He still has a duty to determine what happened in the temple. You can read this and somewhat empathize with the, with the man because the man is just trying to do his job. He's trying to keep the peace. He can't get a straight answer from the mob, from the Jewish crowd. And then he allows Paul to try and clarify to the crowd, thinking that'll solve the problem, and the crowd just grows violent. And then he tries to torture Paul for answers and is blocked due to Paul's citizenship. And so now this is a fourth attempt to to try and figure out who Paul is and what he has done. And so the tribune summons in the next scene the Sanhedrin. Uh, for those of you who may be unfamiliar, the Sanhedrin, it's, the, it's like the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. It, it was made up of 70 men uh, plus the high priest. And all questions regarding Jewish law were settled at the Sanhedrin level. It was a high form of government in Israel. And because they were Jewish, the Sanhedrin, and not Roman, uh, the, the tribune, who is Rome, and the Roman commander is using them on an informal basis. Uh, we can consider this like a pre-trial hearing to try and clarify the accusations against Paul. Uh, now, a lot happens here, but the part of the scene that I want to focus on actually begins down in verse 6. Here, Paul sees an opportunity to exploit the Sanhedrin for their own dysfunction. Uh, we're told that Paul perceived that there was a mix in the Sanhedrin between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, Each of these, the the Sadducees and Pharisees, you can consider these a specific Jewish sect. Uh, and, And although both Jewish, they had very different views of God and the world around them. The Sadducees had a much more naturalistic view of the world. In their eyes, the supernatural did not exist apart from God. They believed in God, but they actually considered him to be far off and distant in relation to humans, and they did not believe in the afterlife. So every blessing that God promised his people would be for this life and this life alone. They only followed the Torah purely for earthly gain, and blessing. Everything for them was tied to what they could attain in this life, in this life alone, because this life was all that they had. And this was a hot topic of debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, um, this idea of an afterlife, right? The, the spiritual world. It kind of reminds me of the popular song. You've probably heard it from the animated movie Encanto, um, if you if you have little kids or grandkids, there's this song, it's, We Don't Talk About Bruno. And uh, Bruno was a family member who's kind of a sore subject, so we just don't talk to him. We're just going to proceed to sing an entire song about him. Um, and I'm convinced every family, every family, whether spoken or unspoken, has those Bruno topics that they just don't talk about because they know As soon as it's brought up over Thanksgiving dinner, it's going to be pandemonium. 
For the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the resurrection of the dead was one of those sensitive topics of debate. So naturally, Paul, almost toying with them, broaches the subject. Paul brings it up. He reminds them of his upbringing, that he was trained as a Pharisee. And then he throws a figurative grenade right in the room. When he says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. There's a great deal of humor here in this scene because Paul is purposefully pitting them against each other, right? Paul is basically saying, look, I am on trial, not because I defiled the temple or degraded the law. No, I am on trial because you Sadducees don't agree with my theology, which, oh, by the way, just happens to be exactly what the Pharisees believe. He illuminates the irony that he's standing on trial for a belief that the Pharisees themselves hold to, the resurrection of the dead. And with this, Paul sends them down a rabbit trail. And probably to Paul's amusement, the Sanhedrin does, in fact, turn on itself. They start bickering over this particular realm of theology to the point where some of the Pharisees end up sticking up for Paul. They're saying, maybe he did see something. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with this guy. Now, the scene seems like a crafty ploy on Paul's part to expose the Sanhedrin, but, but in this strategy, Paul still directed their attention to the heart of the gospel. Paul still, in this moment, bears testimony to what he has seen and what he has heard, mainly the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He's pointing out that the Pharisees are actually right in their belief that their hope is tied to the resurrection of the dead. But then he completes the picture. He connects the dots. He takes it one step further by proclaiming that Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the first fruit of that resurrection. That it's only through Jesus' resurrection that we have hope and that we have resurrection. That Jesus is the missing piece in their knowledge and in their understanding. This shows us that the resurrection of Christ is the centerpiece in all that we believe. If you want to study more about how important the resurrection is, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter. And in that chapter, Paul writes that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Pretty much to say that none of this matters and we're all just wasting all of our time if Jesus is not resurrected. Right? We ought to just pack it up and go home if that's the case because Jesus' resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. And and Paul wants people to know that he has seen Jesus and he has heard Jesus. That is the focal point of Paul's message every single time he has an audience, that Christ died and then he was resurrected. That is the focal point of everything that we do. It's the gospel. Returning to the scene, returning to the kangaroo court here, um, things escalate quickly and soon enough the Sanhedrin's verbal dissension turns physical and it turns violent and it appears that they're going to rip Paul, uh, they're just going to rip him apart. And and so for the fourth time now in this story, 
the Roman tribune saves the day and pulls Paul out of the situation. Roman soldiers seize Paul, remove him from the situation, and place him back in the barracks to await further trial. Now let's zero in here on verse 11 because it's very telling. At this point in the story, consider the emotional and mental condition of Paul. Consider what he has experienced in the last 48 hours to this point. Paul Paul was beaten in the temple, almost killed by a mob outside of the temple. He, He was arrested. He was chastised. He was almost flogged. He was threatened by the Sanhedrin. And now he is thrown back in captivity into the barracks. He is the object of ire of the Jews and the object of investigation of the Romans. He continues in captivity, and he is not free to publicly preach and proclaim the gospel as was his pattern. You can imagine that such circumstances would have made Paul wonder anxiously about his future. Am I even going to get out of Jerusalem alive? And at just the right time, the God of all comfort comes to his side. So it says in verse 11 that the Lord stood by Paul in this moment. Like a friend who comes to your side in a time of need and throws their arm around your shoulder and does nothing but just sit in the mud with you. That is what Jesus is doing. And what does he say? He tells him to take courage. Take courage. Keep up your courage, Paul. Keep taking steps forward despite the hardship. In these seasons of life, it's easy to say, Lord, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but frankly, you have me concerned and I'm anxious about it. And it's easy to say, Lord, to the Lord who knows all things, where have you taken me? What are you doing? Are you going to deliver me out of this mess or not? Are you going to show up? Interestingly enough, we've visited these barracks before in Acts, if you recall. Back in Acts chapter 12, the apostle Peter was arrested and thrown in these very prison cells And in that story, in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord came and actually freed Paul from his bondage and then escorted him out in plain sight of the prison cell in the middle of the night. And so it wouldn't surprise us at all if as the Lord stands by Paul's side here in Acts 23, we're led to believe that God has come to save the day, that God has come to rescue Paul in dramatic fashion, just like he did with Peter. He's going to deliver Paul from his hardship and his trial, Paul is going to be rescued from his circumstance. God is going to make everything right and pull Paul out of the hardship and deliver him out of the prison cell. Well, I hate to break it to you, but God has something else in mind. He he looks to Paul and wraps his arm around him, stands by his side and says, Paul, essentially, he says, Paul, you will not be walking out of prison tonight. You are to stay here, but I promise you, verse 11, just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
If you recall in Paul's initial vision, at the beginning of our passage, when Paul was starting his ministry career, once again, Jesus told Paul that he was going to be sent far away to the Gentiles. And from that moment on, Paul did go far away to the Gentiles. He went far on his missionary journeys after that vision. But here in 11, we see that God had something else in mind for Paul, that Paul was to go even further for the Gentiles. This has been God's plan since the beginning of Paul's call, right? To, to, to wind up in Rome, preaching the gospel in the most prominent city to the most prominent leaders in the world at that time. And it all happens because of Paul's Roman citizenship and the circumstances surrounding his arrest. Paul would go on to his, appeal his case to Caesar, the Roman emperor, and he would be granted his appeal. Through our own human perspective, as we sit with Paul in the prison cell, one would look at this piece of puzzle for Paul, his current situation, and say, I don't get it, but this is an obstacle to overcome. And that the gospel and God's work is hindered by these obstacles until they are removed. But hindsight serves us well here, and we know the rest of the story for Paul. In God's puzzling providence, as the narrative unfolds through the rest of Acts, we come to find that Paul's imprisonment does not restrict the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus, but his imprisonment actually paves the way for the proclamation of the gospel. It paves the way for him to be sent far away to the Gentiles. Who would have ever thought that that would be the case at this point in the story as Paul sits in a prison cell in Jerusalem, uncertain where this particular piece of the puzzle fits. In our limited understanding, if we didn't know the end of the story, we would look at this and we would resent the obstacles. But in God's sovereignty... The obstacles are used as the conduit by which he accomplishes his purposes. What this shows us is that while we cannot see beyond this moment, nor understand how it fits, our comfort does not rely on having all the answers. No, our comfort resides in the presence of God, trusting and knowing that he sees and knows and has even orchestrated and painted the full picture that he will providentially guide us through, not just in spite of the barriers, but actually using those barriers in his unfathomable wisdom to accomplish his perfect kingdom purposes. And there is no greater example of this than the cross. The day that Jesus was crucified, all of his closest followers fled because in their limited understanding, in their mind, this piece of the puzzle, the crucifixion, killed the movement along with their leader. Yet God in his glorious power and wisdom raised Christ from the dead. And it was through Jesus' death and resurrection that sinners like you and I could be reconciled to God 
and brought into a right relationship with him. And so we see in the story of the gospel of the whole Bible that the cross was not a barrier that just needed to be overcome. But it was actually the mode in securing our salvation. Endured so that our sinful nature could be put to death along with Christ's death. And that we then could be raised with him for anyone who calls on his name. And so take great comfort in knowing that the God who is present and has intervened and has revealed himself sees a much greater picture in your life than what we can see. And turn to Christ. Call on his name so that you may be reconciled to him. Would you pray with me? And Father, we thank you that while we don't see the whole picture, we know that you do. And we praise you, Lord, um, that such obstacles and barriers that we experience in this life are are, are not um, too much for you, Lord. Um, We believe that you could overcome all the obstacles and that we could overcome them through you, Lord, but but it's so much more glorious in your providence knowing that you not only overcome these obstacles, but you use them against the schemes of the evil one. What what, what man intends for evil, you intend for good. And you've proven yourself over and over and over again. And so we trust you and we love you and we put our faith in you knowing that you will see us through, knowing that that those who you call children, you, you, you will bring together all these things. We praise you for that, and it's in your precious Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.